Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Grant. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a great delight for me to be here with you. Um, so when I was in college, I used to be a DJ, and uh, one of the songs that I used to play a lot was by Public Enemy called Don't Believe the Hype. I would say don't believe the hype of what, I mean, watching the video twice is not very easy for me. So... Um, Please don't believe the hype. We'll journey on together, see if it is for real. So um, we've been going through the series, uh, James, The Ethics of Grace, as a church together for the past few weeks. And it's my turn to speak on today's text. Today's text is inevitably not an easy one to swallow. And I was thinking to myself, why this text? <laughs> you know, <laughs> first time I'm introduced to the community, basically, and this is what I have to tackle. But I thought how... Um, God has a wonderful sense of humor in bringing us to the place that God desires us to be. Um, I do think that in many ways in my life and in our lives together, favoritism works in some very, very insidious ways. And that's going to be the topic of our sermon today. So I've changed the title of the sermon a little bit. So I'm calling it Freedom from Favoritism, the Irony of Grace. So before we get to that, shall we pray one more time? Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering that you have called us to yourself in Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you are now here giving us your word, both read, preached, and soon to be eaten and drunk. That may this time be a time of adoration and empowerment and edification for all of us. And may that be done according to your will and in the power of the Spirit. 
and in name we prayed. Amen. So as we have just read from the Book of Common Prayer, we might have noticed that this is a third Sunday after Lent. See, many of us keep calendars, calendars, and we follow various calendars and seasons. So what season is this right now? You might ask, and we will say, some of us might say, it's the hockey season, NHL season, NBA season, March Madness is just around the corner. My father was much like the same way. My father said, okay, now the football season's over. We have the basketball season or hockey season. Many of us observe that sort of calendrical piety. I do think that the Book of Common Prayer teaches us that this is a season of Lent, which is the 40 days of participating into the wilderness with Jesus. And so it's the season in which we uh, observe that participation in Jesus as we will experience the climax of joy in Easter. So maybe around this time, around this season, it is entirely apropos to read today's text and really delve into it, see what the Spirit of God has to teach us from it. We do believe, don't we, that grace has real-world cash value, and it does and ought to impact the way we live, the way we believe, the way we speak, the way we look at others and look at ourselves for real. So let me ask all of us, do we play favoritism? To be sure, we frequently use the word favorites to talk about our favorite sports teams. For me, it'll be the Eagles and the Flyers and the Phillies growing up in the Philadelphia area. So really no hope for any of these teams, but there you go. And favorite school subjects or favorite ice cream flavors, right? Uh, go to Jenny's and there are myriad possibilities that you never even heard of. They may become soon to be your favorites. Favorite contestants in The Voice or, you know, some other TV programs or hip-hop or country music, depending on your age, the type of artist, you get the picture. Yet that's different from playing favoritism. Now, favoritism is a seemingly perennial cultural practice that inevitably brings no-win situation for all involved, eventually, since it always makes all parties exhausted because you really can't trust that everyone will deal fairly and impartially with everyone else. You play favorite, but then somebody else might favorite against you, and that's the problem. We know that there are people who are teacher's pets, right? Some of us may have been teacher's pets growing up, first grade, second grade, but then that doesn't look as good for bigger kids and adults and super adults called senior citizens. You know, I'm more and more convinced that middle school never leaves us. I don't know about your middle school experience. Middle school can be a very, very tough experience. For me, why middle school was so hard was because the favoritism running amok. Teachers have favorites and group of kids have favorites. And, and what if you're not part of the winning crowd, cool crowd? That could be a bit of a problem, to say the least. We don't like the word and the ever-present reality of favoritism, even though we seem not too far removed from its long reach into our lives, like middle school memories. The writer of James, echoing the sentiments of so many Old Testament writers, is convinced beyond a shadow of doubt of the toxicity that favoritism can spread in the newly emerging ecosystem called the church. So we find today's straight-up rebuke. In all honesty, many of us don't like this passage, and even if we did like it a bit, we sure hope that James isn't pointing his simultaneously gracious and righteous finger of indignation at our direction. It ain't me, it ain't me, so sang Credence Clearwater Revival. Some of you may remember that song, and so do we. But grace is grace, precisely because he won't let us get off so easily. The hound of heaven, as Francis Thompson, a late 17th century, late 19th century English poet wrote about, 
who really is the divine lover, our God, as the hound of heaven, um, lover of our souls and body, will come after us, unhurried, unperturbed, full of grace and mercy, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we have three points in today's sermon. Three points. First, prevalence of favoritism. Second, poverty of favoritism. Third, power over favoritism. One, prevalence. Two, poverty. Three, power. So let's look at the first point, prevalence of favoritism. We see this in verses 1 through 4. Let's look at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. That's the NIV rendering. Then James goes on to say, Suppose a man comes into your meeting, which is literally synagogue, which means obviously religious assembly, wearing gold rings and fine clothes. Suppose another man, this time a poor person, comes in wearing filthy clothes. How would you treat each person? The same? One sure hopes so, but what the Apostle James saw was a clear disparity in terms of treatment. In fact, the rich person will get an automatic upgrade to a gray seat, whereas the poor person gets the floor, if lucky, or maybe near someone else's stinky and sweaty feet. James says that that is discriminatory politics, and that means you have become, quote, judges with evil thoughts. Now, why is that a problem, becoming a judge? What judge with evil thoughts would be a problem, but there's something else as well. This was apparently serious enough of a problem that James devotes a good deal of time and energy to identify it, to out it, and say that should never be. Here is how he try to combat this dreadful cultural practice. He says, if you believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and that phrase, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, was used in the Gospel of Matthew, as does here, very Jewish of the epistle here in James, to speak of Jesus as the final judge of all things, visible and invisible, and old and new. So it is that judge who is going to judge all things. So we have no business in judging other people. And that sentiment is repeated in Paul's writings. Paul says, you know what? I judge no one. I rise and fall, stand and fall in front of my Lord and my Maker. Therefore, even though I could judge people, but I'm not going to do that. And that's precisely the thing that James is after us here this morning. That since we know Christ as the ultimate and impartial judge who will make beautiful all of our broken stories, wipe away all the tears of those who have had no fair trial, take away all the sorrows of those who had no friends, and expunge from our horizon the grisly reality of death for all, because we have that judge. If you really, really believe that judge of all things, James is basically saying, then don't you dare to be the judge of all of God's beloved people, especially those who are poor. God shows no partiality, so said the Apostle Peter in Acts 10.34, whose spiritual aha moment came after seeing the Gentile Cornelius, who and his group were looked upon with derision and contempt by the Jews, becomes a full-fledged member of the household of God which I said hitherto was understood to be of a Jewish exclusive prerogative. So also said the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.11, with God there is no partiality. Who said in the economy of salvation, God, especially after the ascension of Christ in Pentecost, there was no Jew, no Gentile, thus God being a no respecter of persons. If that's how God indeed operates in the world, then what about us? 
Let me say that again. If that's how God really operates in this world, that God is no respect of persons, how should we behave and believe and live? And that, I think, is the inescapable question that impinges on every one of us. Since we believe that God is no respect of persons, with God there is no favoritism or partiality, what about us? Apparently, that's precisely what was not happening in the household of God, thereby requiring this brotherly intervention to rightly steer the ship. Did you know that one of the ancient symbols of the church was Noah's Ark? Right? Think of Noah's Ark as a kind of representation of the church. So wrote the second century theologian Tertullian, who said that therefore the church was going to be a mixed bag, socioeconomically, culturally, and ethnically as well, just as there was a great mixture in the big Noah's Ark. Big and small creatures of God, shrewd and clueless creatures of God, and cuddly and cruel creatures of God were all in it together. In today's text, we see how social and economic differences led the brother of our Lord to excoriate the laughs of this communal caritas, namely mercy and charity. So we find this deficit of mercy and super surplus of judgmentalism in this emerging ecosystem. And he really laments that, lovingly laments it. According to a French exile pastor in the 16th century who did not get his Genevan citizenship until five years before he died, a sort of a, a foreigner in many ways, John Calvin, this is what he said. Men and women are carried away by outward appearance to hold the rich in honor and the poor in contempt, to favor the beautiful or the eloquent, and to despise the unseemly. But God is different, he says. So we humans, writing in the late, mid-16th century in Geneva, he said, human beings have this tendency to look upon the, the beautiful and, and the rich and honor them. When we look at the poor, we hold them in contempt. The difference that kind of creates greater distance. Difference often creates distance, right? And that's what we are so well aware of. Calvin goes on to say that prosopolepsia, which is a Greek word for favoritism or distinction, is therefore an unjust judgment, which diverts us from the cause itself when our minds are prejudiced by what ought not to be taken into account. So Jesus teaches us that our judgment is righteous when it is not founded upon the appearance. John 7, 24, stop judging merely by appearance, but judge correctly, so said Jesus. Since truth and justice never prevail except when we attend to the case itself and not looking at the face. You know what that means, friends? The word favoritism is the word prosopolepsia, which means roughly an act of discrimination or distinction based upon face or appearance. Let's think about that for a minute. Faces become the basis of distinction and discrimination. Who gets in and who does not get in, right? I had a college friend who used to be a bouncer at a local club in New Haven. And he was a football player for, for, for my school. And he said he is a bouncer and he decides who gets in and who doesn't get in. And I asked him, how do you determine who gets in and who doesn't get in? He goes, whoever I want to hang out with, the type of people who look like I want to hang out with. So he says, all based upon looks. Think about that. Think about a nightclub playing the sort of bouncer politics, and you get in because you're good-looking. You don't get in because you're not good-looking. Do we do the same thing in the church? I was thinking about that example between the first and the second service, actually. 
Because if faces become the basis of distinction or dis- discrimination, who gets in and who doesn't get in, it could be the shape of one's face, good-looking or not, color of one's face, wrinkles on one's face, or the absence thereof. Friends, we all know how that is. Let me illustrate it in two ways, one hopefully in a funny way and the other in a more profound way. So my son and I love reading bumper stickers on back of cars. A couple of favorites of mine. One is, you know, it says, Lord, help me to be the person that my dog thinks that I am. Right? I love it. I mean, I wish I had a dog, then I would just say, you know, put that in my car and just really mean what I, you know, display on the back. But the one that I have in mind for our sermon today is this, this one. It's five words. Are you ready for this? I used to be cool. How many of you have seen that one? I've seen the I used to be cool. Yes, I, I used to be cool. Do you have that on the back of your car? I don't know. But okay. have you seen it? So does, does, does that describe you? They tend to be one, you know, on pretty nice minivans that I've seen in this area that I live. So Honda Odyssey, Toyota Sienna, and then Volvo XC90. I've seen I used to be cool stickers on the back. And it's distinctly kind of uncool-looking bumper sticker, right? It's kind of an old font and just no color at all, just kind of white and black, and there it is, right? And I thought about that. When my son and I saw that for the first time, I used to crack up. And then I said to myself, you know, maybe I should get me one of those and put it in my car. I used to be cool because what I'm saying is there was a moment in my life when I was cool. I may not be much now, but there was a definite moment in life like that, Right? I used to be cool until my car and I drive, uh, you know, the car that I drive or my age show me that when people judge me by the looks of book cover or the car I drive, then I'm judged to be not on the winner's or cool people's side. Harsh, but so true. We also used to be cool until someone younger, stronger, prettier, more fit came along and said, hey, move along and sit at my feet. I'm going to have some of my friends come and sit up front. Another example comes from a letter written by the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia in September 1998. By talking about the late Justice uh, Scalia, I'm not saying one way or another about my own politics, about my view. This is kind of erupting in the, in the cybersphere now about liking or disliking uh, the late Supreme Court Justice. But he said in 1998, in my aging years, I've attended so many funerals of prominent people that I consider myself a connoisseur of the genre. In Christian services conducted for deceased Christians, I am surprised at how often eulogy is the centerpiece of the service, rather than the resurrection of Christ. When the deceased was an admirable person, indeed, especially when the deceased was an admirable person, praise for one's virtues can cause us to forget that we are here to give thanks for God's inexplicable mercy to a sinner, so wrote Justice Scalia. God shows no partiality or favoritism to anyone. All of us are, as Luther calls, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously righteous and sinful. So when this person's own funeral came recently, this is how his son, the Reverend Paul Scalia, preached a sermon. He said, We are gathered here because of one man, a man known personally to many of us, known only by reputation to even more, a man loved by many, scorned by others, a man known for great controversy and for great compassion, that man, of course, is who? Antonin Scalia? No, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Remembering Jesus 
Seeing the face of Jesus in the face of everyone else we see. As Mother Teresa said, you know what? What we have to do if we were to follow Jesus very seriously and very joyfully is when we see somebody else, rather than seeing the physiognomy, rather than seeing that person is beautiful, ugly, or something in between, see that you're looking at Jesus in the face. Think about that. Think about that today. Think about it as you disperse and get coffee or water and say goodbye or say hello. See that you're seeing your friend, but you're also seeing Jesus. When you see a stranger, that person is not a stranger to you because that person already known by God, and that's where Jesus is. Rather than seeing the jewelry, rather than seeing the clothing or the lack thereof, that act of seeing the face of Jesus will free us from our slavery of self. Yet we see so much prevalence of favoritism, don't we? That's the first point. Let's move then to the second point which is poverty of favoritism, poverty of favoritism. Notice I said poverty of favoritism rather than poverty and favoritism. And that was intentional. We see that in verses 5 through 11. Here the issue was this, inversion of our own priorities of and perspectives on life. James writes this, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Did you hear that? God chose those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. It'll be like this, right? So some of us travel a lot on airplanes and so on. Imagine you get into the airplane, right? Mostly the front rows are first class and business class, right? Imagine you walk into an airplane and in the front rows, the first class and business class are the people that you would definitely identify as poor, right? And then you go further and further into the back toward the toilet and you see the so-called rich people sitting in the back. You get that picture? That's exactly what the writer of James is saying. God has done that, but we don't want to see it that way. We don't want life like that because life doesn't work like that. Ah, that's it, friends. The irony of grace. See, grace is precisely countercultural and counterintuitive. What we think is true about life, grace says not so. We don't really think, do we, that the poor are more blessed by God than the rich. Wrestle with me about that throughout the sermon. Because there is this sense that, you know, that we regard the poor as less fortunate than we are. I'll try to dispel that notion in a few minutes. And for Reformed Protestants, wherever else may be true, it has to mean that we follow Scripture seriously. And the Old Testament is shot, to right, shot right the way through with statements that speak of God's special protection for the widows, orphans, and the aliens. Once again, the widows, orphans, and the aliens. For our younger friends among us who are taking the quiz right now. And this triumvirate of the weak in ancient Near Eastern cultures was, according to one Reformed pastor, these widows, orphans, and aliens were under the guardianship and protection of God. Hence, everyone who plunders orphans or harasses widows or oppresses strangers seemed to carry an open war against God. Did you hear that? Right? If you actually, you know, uh, uh, plunder orphans, harass widows, or oppress strangers, then you're carrying an open war against God, who has promised that these should be safe under the shadow of God's hand. Furthermore, Calvin wrote in his commentary in Isaiah that God chiefly mentions the poor because for the most part, and listen to this carefully, because for the most part they are destitute of help and assistance. While magistrates and judges ought to have assisted them, the poor, more than others, 
they allow themselves greater liberty and indulge more contemptuously in oppressing them. Rather than protecting them, we plunder them, according to Calvin. Those who have wealth and friends or favor, they are far less liable to be oppressed, end quote. So the poverty of favoritism is like this. If you believe, if you believe that being on the same side with God, many of us do believe that we're on the right side with God, that is truly to have nothing lacking for you, that you have everything because you have God on your side. Then if you're playing favoritism according to the logic of James and according to the logic of Isaiah, you're experiencing the abject poverty of favoritism without even knowing it. You think you're on God's side, but you're playing favorites all the time. Then James says, you're not on God's side at all. You think you're poor, but in fact you're, you think you're rich, but in fact you are quite, quite destitute of the very things that you think you do have it. It is cancerous growth that may or may not be detected until it's too late. And I often wonder why that is. Why is that? Why is that we continue to play favoritism and not even notice it? It's corrosive effect, not only in our family, not only in our friend group, not only in our network of colleagues, but particularly inside a body of Jesus. Could it be because we believe this statement to be biblical? Heaven helps those who help themselves. Heaven helps those who help themselves. Do you know what book that is that's taken from? What book from the Bible? No book from the Bible. That's right. Nowhere in the Bible. Yes, so deeply lodged in our hearts as self-evident truth. It goes like this, friends. Work hard, and that's how you'll know that you're part of the God's chosen ones. This idea was popularized by the German sociologist Max Weber, who in 1904 wrote this book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, in which he said that the Puritans and the Calvinists, the wasps basically, came up with an interesting doctrine that directly contributed to the rise of capitalism, and it's like this. Since we really don't know the secret will of God, we have to be busy working with our hands. So being industrious and relatively well-off in middle class, upper middle class, upper class is a sure sign of God's love for me in predestinating me. God has chosen me. And how do I know that God chose me? Because look at me. Look at my livelihood. I'm doing all right. We live in a nice suburb and we have a couple of cars and a couple of kids and a couple of dogs and a couple of cats. And look, God must love us. God has chosen us. All right, so far so good, perhaps. But then let's think about the flip side. If you're poor, are you cursed by God? Let me share the danger of this Weberian idea. I teach a course, uh, a graduate course in Riverman Maximum Security Prison. So I've taught one two years ago called Prison Writings and the Spirituality of Freedom. And this year, this semester, I'm teaching a course called Theodicy and the Problem of Evil in Christian Traditions. Thinking about why do bad things happen to good people and where is God when calamities strike and things of that sort within the framework of Christianity. There are nine Vanderbilt graduate students and about ten inmates who are serving life sentences and other crimes that seem commensurate with being in maximum security prison. There will be those that we as a society have deemed to be unfit for common habitation with people outside of prison walls, and we might think of them as not very fortunate, maybe, maybe down and out, maybe deserving, and so on and so forth. These folks are not rich. They're poor. Yet they seem in so many ways rich in faith to me. Talking about, we're talking about the story of Cain and Abel and Job a couple of weeks ago. And one of the brothers there said, you know what? And I asked him, so when you read the story of Cain and Abel, 
What do you see? What kind of picture of God emerges there? And this brother said this, You know, Paul, here I see a God who is the God of the unrighteous. I see the God who is the God of the cursed and God of the losers. God of the unrighteous, God of the cursed, and God of the losers. And that really hit me like a thunderbolt. Because let me be honest with you, friends. When I think about my God, I don't think of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, and Jacob, and so on and so forth, Mary and Jesus, as the God of the cursed, God of the the losers, God of the unrighteous. Because somehow in my middle-class sensibilities, I have come to believe I am righteous. I have come to believe that I am blessed, that I have come to believe that I'm a winner. So when this brother of mine was serving life and said to me and to the group that when I see this story of Cain and Abel, I see the picture of God who cares for the unrighteous, cares for the curse, cares for those who are losers of history. You know, that to me was one of the most teachable moments, profound teachable moments for me in the last two decades or so. I've learned from the, some of the best in the world. Yet the irony of irony was that I learned about something so powerful and profound and poignant from this brother who is behind bars that you will never regard as someone we should put up and say, he's a paragon of virtue, someone who is worthy to teach us, someone who should be, whatever, what am I called, scholar in residence or something like that. That will not happen. Yet this brother said, God of the cursed, God of the losers, God of the unrighteous. Dearly beloved, do you know that God? Do you believe in that God? Do you love this God? Who doesn't hang out with the winners only think about this. Jesus, Jesus spent time in prison, albeit one night. Did you know that Jesus was executed? Now, we don't think of it like that. We say Jesus was crucified, but hang on. How, who put him to death? It was a Roman institution of crucifixion. He was a state criminal. We sanitize Jesus' identity and story so much that we think of him, oh, being crucified, oh, that's pity, but that's great, resurrection came. Friends, do not, do not sanitize the grisly death of Jesus. He died as a state criminal. He perhaps can more readily identify with the story of those who are in prison than me and you. We need to let that chilling fact sink in a little bit. Let the discomfort do its work. So back to James' hot and scorching words of truth, love, and mercy. Although it does sound like a severe mercy indeed, God has chosen the poor, but you're dishonoring the poor, dissing those who don't have much at all. And my paraphrase is, look, you're being totally servile and sycophantic, butt-kissing, soul-losing, Jesus-forgetting buffoons. Do you know who they are? They're the ones who are exploiting you economically, dragooning uh, you legally, and mocking you religiously. And the reason why you're so nice to them has nothing to do with neighborly love. It has everything to do with simply craven fear of the mightier than thou's. James says, furthermore, that if you break just one law, then you've broken all of it. In fact, you've become a slave to that sin of partiality and favoritism. Let's be honest. We don't think of favoritism as a sin. We don't think that it's something that deserves some some stranger come up and, you know, kind of talk for 25 minutes and says, you shouldn't be doing this. Because we sort of do it all the time. But let's listen to the word of God. In the community that we call the church, favoritism could be deadly. Leaves people as carcasses and never to be picked up again. They will not come back. Oh, that church plays favoritism. They're only nice to certain people and whatever that certain people might be. 
Rather than buying protection for yourself by being servile and serviceable to the rich and powerful, according to James, these early Christians are buying judgment of the Lord, thereby powerfully demonstrating the poverty of favoritism. Let's then move to the third and the final point, power over favoritism, and we see that in verses 12 and 13. So you say now, Paul, I'm tired of who I am. How can I break free from this? If, and perhaps since so many of our judgments about others in self are based on based upon externals, what one looks like, how one was dressed, whether they look clean over a certain standard of wealth or not, people are getting judged. How exhausting it is. If you're always, I mean, you're judging yourself against other people, you know what? I've done it and you've done it. It's tiresome. It's exhausting. It's never-ending. That's the last type of treadmill I'm hopping on, for real. James reminds the readers that such a practice shows that one might not know the liberating power of grace that liberates from the slavery to sin and fastidious adherence to law as if that was the pathway to righteousness. So the key sentence here is this. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. If I preached an 830 sermon and I led a Bible study after it, and you know, after the Bible study, my beloved wife said, you know, I have something to share, and said, you know, Paul needs to emphasize the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment, because apparently I didn't do that much in the first sermon. So we're going to spend some time talking about that. So how is it that the law gives freedom? How can we know that mercy indeed will triumph over judgment? Because James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, that was certainly part and parcel of Jewish religion, for sure. That Judaism was predicated on hasad, the gracious giving of the law, and then fulfilling of the law by God. God gives the law the second time, thus we have the book of Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. So the Jewish people were not legalists, no, far from it. They clearly understood that their identity and their mission was based upon that gracious being of God and act of God, Right? But so they were fulfilling the law. They were doing their best to fulfill the law. But, and they had this intense messianic longing that Messiah will come and then Messiah will restore political order and also do something with the law itself. And here, James, who was a very Jewish of Christians, if he was indeed the, the brother of our Lord Jesus, Jesus was Jewish, the brother must have been Jewish. The, they were steeped in Judaism. And, but he says, this, the, you're going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. It's a real important kind of catchphrase there, law that gives us freedom. Because many might not think that way, precisely because many might think that law is the one that will capture me and ensnare me. The writer says, look, think about the law as that which will give you freedom. What does that mean? These are perennially thorny theological and existential questions. Right? For James and many early Jewish followers of Jesus, they saw in Jesus the perfect model of keeping the Torah, delighting in the Word of God day and night without any vacillation. In fact, it is His perfect obedience to the law that gives us the freedom that we so desperately desire. We want freedom and everything that comes with it. As grace was truly to persevere and to see us through to the end, James can confidently assert that mercy triumphs over judgment in that eschatological hope, the hope of the final world. And that faith that believes that what is sheer impossibility with humans is ever-present reality and actuality for God. That it is that law that will give us freedom. So James calls us to join in the power of the Spirit in leading us to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who, since he's the ultimate judge, liberates from the ever-exhausting feeling of judging everyone, including ourselves. He says, I have judged you and already declared you to be perfect. 
I've judged that person, whether that person has no money or a lot of money. All of you, all of you are equally at the foot of Jesus, James says. Therefore, that gives us that freedom. It's the law that gives us freedom as we find ourselves in that relationship with the law giver and the law keeper. Let me say that again. Jesus is the law giver, but also law keeper. He not only gave the law, but he fulfilled it perfectly so that you and I can come to Christ and say, you have paid it all, all to you I owe, so I go in freedom with gratitude. Only in doing so can we find a true freedom from our slavery to self and the standards of the world, which are so much closer to us than we like to admit, that I like to admit. For James, more than anything else, one of the keys for finding the law that gives us freedom was to find both the lawgiver and the keeper to be converging in Jesus. As I said, so often we forget that, that power resides in Jesus alone, and we try to find power in other areas. I found this quote from an urban PCA pastor, Reverend Duke Kwan, who ministers among the poor and the disenfranchised in the Washington, D.C. area, these words, when he says, The problem with evangelicals is not their politics. It is more fundamentally their lust for power, political power, social power, power by any means necessary, power in Jesus' name but for self-aggrandizement, power that refuses to assume a cruciform identity, shape of the crucifix, suffering and servanthood, ministry from the margins, and the weakness of the cross we so easily forget, he writes. We play favoritism because we want power. We want control. We are nice to certain people because by being nice to them, they'll be nice to us so we can advance one inch forward. That's avarice. That's grabbing power, so says Du Kwon. Do we really believe that power overall, including favoritism, power over these things resides alone in Jesus? As I said earlier, looking at everyone, everyone's face and seeing Jesus there, Black, white, yellow, brown, it does not matter. Rich, poor, male, female, it does not matter. Whole or not, it does not matter. See the face of Jesus. Do we see that? Do we really believe that only in Jesus we can see mercy triumphing over judgment? Mercy does triumph over judgment only because in Jesus, who plays no favorites whatsoever, with him there is no partiality that we find our identity there. And we can stop trying. We can stop trying to make ourselves more likable in the eyes of all of these people who may not stay around. So then, brothers and sisters, young and old, let's come to him, especially to this meal of communing with him called the Eucharist, which in Greek means I give thanks. We collectively give thanks because in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're daily being weaned from our worldly affections, and particularly through the liturgy of the Word and Sacrament. And in it, we're reminded of whose we are. We belong together, poor and rich, well-dressed or barely clothed, to the Lord who sees us as beloved, who experienced poverty, who experienced nakedness, who experienced dereliction, who experienced death, who experienced incarceration, who experienced state capital crime, thus being executed. It is that Jesus with his nail-pierced hands calling us to himself, come and be fed, come and commune with me, and in doing so you live unto life eternal without any fear of judging others or being judged. Stop playing favorites. Let's leave middle school. Let's pray.